All right, grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 30. And we're going to finish up the chapter today. <clears throat> Verses 17 through 38. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that they may not die. They shall wash with their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is, 250, 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. You shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil." With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall be poured on the body, not of an, it shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stasi, I don't know, or gina, <laughs> galbum, and sweet spices with pure frankincense of each there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put it part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you and the incense that you make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use it as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. Lord, we hear both wonderful positives and negatives here in this text. And 
we thank you that we have not been cut off from amongst your people, that we have not died because of our sins, but instead, Lord, we have been accepted and adopted into your family. And that's a grace that we receive joyfully. Lord, you promised that you began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. And during that completion, it is a process that we look at whereby you make us more holy. And Lord, we ask and pray that as we see your holy work in our lives, that we would be receptive to your Spirit's leading, that we would be guided by your Spirit, and that we would embrace, Lord, all the work that you're doing in us, Lord, even if it's painful discipline or just joyful work that you're doing. But either way, Lord, we pray that you would do your work in us and that we would truly become more holy unto you. Thank you for your grace and your name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> we come to pretty much the final and last of the pieces of furniture that partake of or make up the temple. And this last one is the bronze basin. It's nowhere really recorded how big this actually was. But what it was was a place where the priests, when they're offering their sacrifices regularly, would come and they would ritually wash. They needed to be clean as they presented each and every sacrifice before the Lord. So this was a place where they would have regularly been to. Time and time and time again as they're sacrificing, going and washing, sacrificing, going and washing, sacrificing, going and washing. Anytime they offer anything, they would need to go back here and wash. Probably, we don't have it recorded anywhere, but we would assume that there was probably somebody who had a regular pattern and all they did was bring water continually into this basin. And it was a place where water was regularly flowing. Now it's like a big huge um, pot almost in the Solomon Temple. It is called the Great Sea. It was so big and so vast that it had 20 places where it had a little nozzle that you would turn on, turn off, where you could wash. And if 20 priests were around there, there would have been plenty of room for all of them. It was a massive, massive uh, structure <clears throat> there in Solomon's temple. This was nowhere near as large as that, but it certainly necessitated it to be big enough so that the priests, as they're offering, could keep coming and going and continually washing themselves. It says that they're supposed to wash their hands and wash their feet. Now, nowhere do we have any type of holy footwear that the priests are adorned with, which is a little odd considering every other piece of garment that they're supposed to be wearing, they've been wearing. But it reminds us that, remember, when Moses encountered God out there in the wilderness, he was commanded to take his feet, or his feet off, his sandals off his feet, because he was standing on holy ground. And if there is 
any other holy ground other than this, I'm not sure where it would have been. And so I do believe it's a little bit of a conjecture, but I don't think it's far-fetched that these priests ministered with bare feet as they ministered on the ground. And so they regularly needed to be washing their feet, washing their hands. Uh, you can imagine the mess that just regular routine sacrifice was. The ground probably would have been muddy around all of these areas as well <clears throat> as they're performing their rituals. So every single time they offer something, they go have to go back and be re-cleansed. Now, it says that their hands and their feet need to be cleansed so that they may not die. Now, we are assuming that if they come before the Lord and they are dirty, that they therefore will be judged by the Lord. There is an interesting passage in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. You're probably relatively familiar with this story, but Joshua was the name of the high priest in the days of Zechariah. And Joshua, the high priest, he's ministering in a time that is after the exile. The new temple has been rebuilt, and it was, you'll remember, a far cry from the old temple, so much so that everybody who remembered the old temple wept and lamented about how uh, sad the new Zerubbabel temple actually was in terms of its stature. But nonetheless, it was still holy unto the Lord and a place where people came and met with the Lord. But Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, he is coming to the Lord, presenting offerings. It's likened to us. It doesn't specifically say it's the Day of Atonement, but that certainly seems to be the case as he's coming to offer sacrifice before the Lord. And then Satan shows up. Satan, standing at the right hand of the angel of the Lord, which we know to be Jesus, to accuse him. But the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. You, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. It's not this a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, listen, clothed in filthy garments. So this is the accusation that Satan brings. How can you let this man come before you and presume to be representing the people of God and you, you God, to the people when he is arrayed in filth? That you should judge him for this. But God says to Satan, isn't this a brand plucked from the fire? Meaning he was pulled out from the fire. Of course, there's going to be some soot. Of course, there's going to be some dirt. And then God says to the angel and to those, or pardon me, the angel says to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity and I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. You just hear, you see Zechariah standing there watching the scene unfold. And as the angel of the Lord tells the other angels to go and to change his vestments to clean, Zechariah is so caught up in the moment, he cries out, hey, put a clean turban on his head too. I love that, that he just sees the nature of the situation. He appreciates the gravity of it and says it's not just his clothes, but also make sure that what is adorning his head is clean as well. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Now, he is told that he is supposed to not only have the outward adornment of holiness, but the inward heart of holiness as well. And God says, I've clothed you. Now you continue in this pattern that I've laid out before you. This is how we read or we should interpret the passage that they may not die. If they come and they're unpresentable, and they come and they're misrepresenting the Lord, God will indeed judge them and punish them. But the ones whom he has chosen, like he said here in our passage, he indeed clothes with righteousness. And really, that's the point of this bronze laver. It is the last piece of furniture. We've already gone through all of the rest that have to deal with our salvation have to deal with our rightness before the Lord, have to deal with us being represented by the Lord, us being provided for by the Lord. And now we come to the place where as we're regularly, continually going and meeting before the Lord, He is sanctifying us. In fact, all three of these elements that we're looking at today has to do with our sanctification, has to do with us becoming more and more righteous before the Lord, more and more holy. Their regular washing as they're offering before the Lord is a symbol of the fact God is regularly cleansing them. And they need regular cleansing. Even though their sins have been sacrificed on the altar, even though blood has been sprinkled on all of the implements, even though even before the Ark of the Covenant, blood has been sprinkled, still they need to continually come and be cleansed each and every time that they're about to offer anything. It shows us that we, even though we have been declared holy, even though we've been justified, there is still work to be done in terms of our cleansing. Now, Martin Luther struggled with this concept when he was um, transitioning, I guess we could say, if we want to use a an interesting modern word, from the Catholic Church to being Protestant, that he did not really um, know how to reconcile the passages he read about being justified, but yet he was still a sinner. He, he had this concept ingrained in his mind of imparted righteousness, that God's righteousness actually has to be imparted to me so that I am actually holy, not just declared holy, not just, uh, there can be no um, legal fiction, as some people might say, 
with the, the idea of justification. But as he was wrestling with it, he did come up with a Latin phrase that probably wasn't original with him, but he certainly popularized it, the phrase that we're familiar with, simile justus et peccator. Simul simultaneously, justus just, et and peccator sinner. At the same time, simultaneously, we're just and sinners. And that was the idea that really broke the camel's back, as it were, from the Catholic Church. Yes, justification was indeed a big deal, and it was vital. But the fact that we are the same time holy and still a sinner was a definite departure from the Catholic Church. And we look at a passage like this, and we see the symbolism is clear here. And we should also see that in the New Testament, we find this concept also being reiterated. And we do in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. At the end of that chapter, Paul writes, For we are the temple of the living God. And as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We become the temple of the living God as God takes up residence in us through the Holy Spirit. And as he does this, he makes his dwelling with us. This is where we find the idea of being justified. God declares us just, and he comes and takes up residence within us. He is our God. We are his people. Because of that, because of what God has done in coming down and in taking up residence with us, he tells us to go out from the midst and be separate from the world, be separate from the unholy things. Touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. I will be a father, and you will be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So we see here in this passage that we are just. God has taken up residence within us as his temple, and because of that now, now we need to have a work done and be participating in the work of sanctification, of becoming more and more and more holy. In Romans chapter 16, Pardon me, chapter 6, not 16. Paul writes, what do we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, we have been justified through the death of Jesus Christ. He died, so did we. Now he lives, and so we live. So Paul's response to that is, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we know, 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also must you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Why? Why should we consider ourselves dead? Because of our union with him. We're united with him in his death. We're united with him in his resurrection. So therefore, we're united with him in everything in between as well, which is where he picks up in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So if you've been united with him in death and you're united with him in his resurrection, now in the meantime, as you're living for him, be united with him in his life as well. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Cleanse yourself. Wash yourself. Continue to be holy. Walk in his holiness. Don't present yourself as a slave or don't present your body to sin and allow sin to have dominion over you. Don't do that. He goes on in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So Paul goes on to add the means by which we present ourselves to God is by obeying the standard of teaching that we've been given. It comes through the word of God. In fact, Paul again says this in Ephesians 5 when he talks about husbands and wives, but he says, I'm not really talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church, that Christ has taken the church and washed the church with the word so that he might present the church to himself spotless and undefiled. The teaching that we're washed by is the word of God. This is why the word is so important and why we have to keep coming back to the Bible. Why I, I, I get asked, and I haven't been asked this in a minute, um, but I have from time to time, why, don't you, uh, why do you spend so much time in the Bible? Why do we go verse by verse like this? Why don't you just go and do a sermon series on something that's a little more practical to our needs? Well, this is why. Because you need the Word of God to wash you over and over and over. Every single Sunday, you need the Word of God to wash and to cleanse your spirit. You need to hear it so that you might be capable by the Holy Spirit that's indwelling you to not present yourself as slaves to sin. To overcome sin, to walk in holiness with the Lord. Now, Paul writes about this all the time, but he is by no means 
the only one to talk in these terms. In the book of 1 John, chapter 1, First John chapter 1, John writes in verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ the Son cleanses us from all sin. So, here, we're Christians, and he's assuming that we're Christians here. He's saying we, he's including himself in the category of these people here. If we say that we walk in light, then we ought to be people of the light because Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sin. It is a continually ongoing cleansing that's taking place. So he's not just talking here about sanctification, or pardon me, justification that happened at one time. He's talking about our current state even right now. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. So if we as Christians say we don't have any sin anymore, then we're lying. The truth isn't in us. We still do have sin. And we need the blood of Jesus Christ to be continually cleansing us from our sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John's commentary on the state of his soul and our soul is that we need a continual cleansing of our sins. It needs to be an ongoing, continual pattern of life. Like the bronze basin. You come to the bronze basin every time you offer and you have to cleanse yourself again and then go back out. And guess what you do when you go out? You get dirty again. And you're continually coming back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. All day long, the entirety of your ministry is one where you're getting dirty and getting cleansed, getting dirty and getting cleansed. And it's likened to us in the world. We go out and we live in the world. We get dirty. We sin. We're around other people and we engage in sin. We're by ourselves and we engage in sin. And so we continually come back to Jesus Christ and His blood. And where do we find Jesus Christ and his blood, it's in the word of God. We continually come back to the gospel and these truths that are here in the gospel. Now, Jesus himself talks in these terms in John chapter 13, that famous passage where the upper room begins the night before his crucifixion. Um, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and participates the feast of Passover with them. And it says in verse 1, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter 
who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, oh Lord, not my feet only, but my head and my hands as well. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Then he goes on and he says, now do you understand what I've done for you? And he explains what he did. The point of it is that as Jesus has cleansed them, it is as if they have bathed. We look back to our baptism and we are united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We just read about that in Romans chapter 6. After that, we do not need to be spiritually cleansed thoroughly head to toe. We have been justified by God. But now we have to be clean over and over and over with our hand, or pardon me, with our feet, because as we're living through this life, we're going to get dirty because we still will continue to sin. And the way, again, we're cleansed, Jesus said, is by having him washing us. When we're washed with his blood and we find his blood in the pages of scripture as we read the word of God and we're continually cleansed with the word of God over and over and over, we are bathed by it. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, it says in verse 12, Now put on then as God's chosen and holy beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has also forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed in everything, in the, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and give thanks to God the Father through him. So put on as God's chosen ones. You are holy, you are beloved, these qualities and these characteristics. This is what holiness looks like. So if you wonder what it looks like, if you're saying, okay, well, what should the result of me being washed be like? It should be humility, compassion, meekness, kindness, patience, bearing with one another. If you have a complaint against one another, forgive the other one, even as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these things, put on love. This is what somebody who is washed in the word of Christ, this is somebody who's allowing the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse them from their sin. This is what the person who is being sanctified looks like. So the question that you should be asking yourself at this point is, number one, what sin is hindering me or what sins are hindering me from living this kind of life? And number two, In these categories that are positive, 
where do I, number one, find myself in this list? And then also, where do I not find myself in this list? So as we go to be washed by the Holy Spirit, we can find our distinctive, specific sins on display. We can find our dirtiness that we need to be washed by here as we look through these kind of lists. So these are really helpful for us. They're really helpful in that as we read through them, we see, ah, it's clear, it's on display. It's almost like we're standing before God and Satan and Satan accuses us and says, yeah, here's where you fall short. Here's your sin and throws it in our face. And we are grateful that the Lord Jesus is there standing on our side on our behalf to say, yes, here is where you're dirty, but here, let me cleanse you and clean you up. And then your brethren stand around you say, yeah, put a clean turban on his head too, you know? <laughs> it's a wonderful picture. We're excited when we see sanctification working in others. At least it should be. It's so frustrating finding um, Christians who are... Um, just desperately looking for sin in other people's lives. That, that, that you, you, as a Christian, we should not think more highly of ourselves than the rest of the world. There are so many Christians who think that they are so good. And you can hear it a lot of times, honestly, when they start talking about their political views. You can hear the just arrogance of like, well, we've got this figured out. The rest of them, they're crazy nut jobs. Yeah, they might be. But the reality is, is that we're exposing a little bit of our own hearts, aren't we? We're not living with humility when we're just pointing out other people's sins. The reality is we have plenty of our own to deal with. The church is not made up of good people. The church is made up of bad people who are desperate for God and his holiness, who are desperate for him to work in our lives. At least that's the way it should be. And that's the way I would hope that we would be people who are genuinely excited about what the Lord is doing in other people's lives and not going, oh boy, you sin a whole lot. And what, what that does is it makes us not be honest and open with our brethren. I need you and you need me. We need to go before the Lord and admittedly wash there at the basin by the blood of Jesus Christ through the continual washing of the word of God. But if I'm always looking for your sin, then you're going to hide it as best as you possibly can. And if you're always looking for my sin, I'm going to hide it as best as I can. But instead, if we're regularly acknowledging our sin and going to the Lord and cooperatively together seeking him and his holiness, it will benefit our sanctification greatly when we're not just a club of holy people. Now, number two, the oil that is made here. Now, I have no idea. I've never made oil. This is a lot, though. I did look that up. This is, would be a huge thing full. It would be, you know, like five, six gallons of this oil. And I don't know how heavy that would have been, but indeed it was um, an ample amount of oil for everything. Now, it wasn't as they took this oil and just smeared it on every single corner of every single piece of the furniture and the fixture or on Aaron himself. But you'll remember that they would take leaves, hyssop usually, and they would splatter it on everything. So this oil was taken and splattered everywhere and it was probably done regularly, not just a one-time thing, but they would go back and continually be reapplying this oil, re-sanctifying, continually sanctifying as it were, the instruments that are used there in the tabernacle. 
Now, oil we looked at already, if you'll remember, when we talked about Aaron and the oil that was applied to him and anointed to him, when we talked about his priestly ordination. And we saw how that was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon him, gifting him, and setting him apart for the ministry. Well, the symbol of oil doesn't change just because it's in another part of the text. The symbol of the oil is still the Holy Spirit. And we see that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. Now, I didn't bring up the Holy Spirit very much already. I talked about the blood of Christ and I talked about the Word of God because here we come to where the Holy Spirit really works in us to produce holiness. There is indeed a cooperation that happens that couldn't happen before we were saved because we were unrighteous, we were not capable, we could not come to Him. We needed Christ to come in via the Holy Spirit and cause us to be born again. And now that we have the Holy Spirit within us and we have a new nature, now there is indeed a sanctified cooperation that takes place with the Holy Spirit and us, even though we're still simul justus et peccator. We're still sinners and saints at the same time. But in First Corinthians, pardon me, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter one, a passage we did look at when we looked at the Holy Spirit ordaining Aaron and the priesthood. He says in verse one, let's begin in verse twenty, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him, through Jesus, we utter our amen to, the God, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, who has anointed us, who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God has set us apart. Jesus Christ died for us. He gives us all the promises that were promised. And in him, we've been anointed by the Holy Spirit <clears throat> that he gives to us. And this is a guarantee. This is a guarantee that indeed we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. The Holy Spirit's work within us is an anointing upon us because it had to happen from without. That's what anointing is. God from without came anointed. Aaron had to be anointed by another. He didn't anoint himself. Like that, God has anointed us and given us his Holy Spirit and put this seal upon our hearts via the Holy Spirit. In the book of Titus, chapter 3, it's a great passage. I'd love to spend a whole bunch of time on this, but we're going to have to just look at one verse real quick. Actually, let's back up and look at two. Verse five, uh, chapter 3, verse 5 says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we being justified by his grace might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So he saved us, he regenerated us, he gave us the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us richly. Again, it's 
very similar language to the oil, anointed by oil, having oil poured over the head of Aaron. But the Holy Spirit is poured on us richly through Jesus our Savior so that just as we've been justified by the Holy Spirit's work in us, we will also, it says here, be glorified that we might have become heirs of the hope of eternal life. Well, that also includes everything in between. His work within us as he is conforming us into the image of Christ. As he's doing his work of sanctifying us, helping us, empowering us, gifting us to become more like Christ. In Romans chapter 8, it says in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So the Holy Spirit is not only saving you, to get you into his heaven, but he's saving you and giving you power right now to live a life that is consistent and that is pleasing with God. He gives life to your mortal bodies through the Holy Spirit. Now, finally, we look at this last bit here about the incense. And last week we spent a lot of time on the altar of incense and did indeed talk about prayer And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this since we did last week. But the symbol of the incense hasn't changed, just like the symbol of oil. It is the symbol of our prayer life. And it is offered up before the Lord. It is a most holy thing. And it shall not be made just for the common people. It's made for only the Lord. Uh, Not anybody's free to just come and use it. We looked at that last week how that God does not hear everybody's prayers. He doesn't listen to everybody's prayers. There are many people that he doesn't. There's lots of passages that speak like that. Isaiah chapter 1 is a good example. There are a bunch of Proverbs. And anyways, there are many people who do not have their prayers heard by God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, Pray for us that we may be delivered from evil men, because not all have faith. Not everybody has faith, and faith is what is required for our prayers to be heard by God. And so when we come to the Lord by faith, He hears us, but not all people do have faith and trust in Him. Prayer, if we look at the Lord's prayer, specifically in Matthew chapter 6, He tells us, Here's what our prayer should look like. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and on the street corner that they may be seen by others. Truly, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room, shut your door, and your Father who sees you in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You've probably all been around, and I, I know, you know, there's, sometimes in prayer meetings where this, there's always a guy who wants to pray in Old King James. 
thou, oh, Father, you know, and it's like you never talk like that except when you're praying. And it makes me wonder if he's praying to be heard, to, you know, for everyone else to go, wow, he has a real spiritual prayer life. And instead, we're supposed to be um, humble and quiet. And it doesn't mean we're supposed to not have a prayer meeting. They had lots of them in the book of Acts. But what it does indicate is that we're not supposed to do it so that we're on display. But instead, we're pleading with the Lord so that he answers our prayers and we're going to him. And it should be very little about us. Verse 7, when you do pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Oh, Father God, Father God, Father God. You heard prayers like that where Father God is repeated like every other phrase. Um, Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Instead, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven those who uh, forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So when we pray, we come to the Lord and he gives us here a clear instruction how to do it. Just like he gave instruction, here's the kind of incense I want offered before me. And he says, this is what you're to bring before me. You're not to use it for yourself. You're not to go ahead and make it and have it any old time. This is what I want for me. And if it's prescribed, if it's done the way it's prescribed, it's pleasing to the Lord. Jesus says, pray in this manner. So we take the Lord's prayer and we use it to structure our prayers. We come to the Father and we praise his name. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. May your name be glorified. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's all about the Lord and his glory, worshiping him before we get to anything that's our own requests. But it begins our own request with, Lord, provide for us. Continue to provide for us. Provide for us physically and provide for us spiritually as you forgive. And then, Lord, help me to live a sanctified spiritual life so that I can forgive others the way you've forgiven me. It's a a very simple model, but it's one that we should take to heart, not just memorize it so we could say it uh, out of a routine kind of thing but instead we can say these words we can use this as a clear pattern for us because we know it's pleasing to the Lord because he's told us it's pleasing to him so as we conclude with this um, idea of sanctification here in the pages of Exodus prefigured for us we see how he washes us with his word the blood of Jesus Christ through the reading of his word and we are continually in need of that And the things that really empower our sanctification are the two things we see after that. The Holy Spirit's work within us and our prayers. And so we, as we go before the Lord, we ask him to continue to sanctify us. We read his word. We're informed by his word. We're convicted by his word. We're led by his word. And we're led to the Holy Spirit as we come to him and empowered by him to pray in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. 
So our sanctification is this, and I pray that as we've heard the words here about this, that we would take them to heart and find ourselves being sanctified even this week as we live our lives out in the world. You will be stained by sin. You will commit sin. And as you're stained by sin and you commit sin, know that there is clear forgiveness from the Lord, that there is cleansing. In fact, he's not surprised by it. He's actually made clear, um, clear instruction on how to deal with it when indeed you do sin. So go to the Lord with your sin and he will accept you as you come to him in the manner that he's prescribed. And as his brethren and sisters around you, we praise you, we, or we praise the Lord that he's doing this good work in you and we are uh, side by side with you in terms of sanctification. We want to pray with you and help you and encourage as you do sin as well as I do. Um, we want to see the Lord glorified as he's sanctifying us and making us just more like him, growing us in his holiness. Lord, holiness is something that I very rarely feel, but it is a truth nonetheless. And, and I don't have to feel it, do I, Lord, to know that you are doing your good work in me. But Lord, we do pray that you would empower us to help us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow you so that, Lord, we might rightly worship you and praise your name so that it's pleasing to you, Lord, not some kind of just routine action not some kind of vain work, but instead heartfelt, passionate, pleasing to you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the grace, the grace that you give to us. The grace in justification and the grace in sanctification. So Lord, continue please to do that work, Lord, in your name. Amen.